Thanks for joining us, Alicia Kuzak from Fonfer and Attorneys to talk about the recent court case. Uh, and yeah, I guess a sad set of facts. Uh, maybe you can first explain to uh, the listeners uh, what happened in this case. Thank you for having me, sir. Yes, yeah, so um, there are a lot of role players in this case. Um, so I'm going to go through the series of events that took place in a chronological order as it's easier then to understand who each person is. So uh, this took place in a complex where Ms. Ramla Khan had a unit. Ms. Ramla Khan um, wanted her kitchen to be upgraded. So she approached a Mr. Maynard and asked him to talk with the owner of the unit in order to improve her kitchen. Mr. Maynard then approached Mr. Dembu because he represents Mr. Dembu and informed him that Ms. Mrs. Ramlakan wanted renovations. Mr. Dembu then agreed to these renovations. He um, then went and hired a Mr. Carr in order to refurbish the kitchen cupboards in Mrs. Ramlakan's kitchen. Uh, Mr. Carr then sent two workers to the unit in order to do the work. While at the unit, the two workers drilled into a wall and then they caused damage to an electrical unit. They then called their boss, Mr. Carr, and informed him that something had gone wrong with the electricity in the unit. He then told them to immediately call, a, a call an electrician and have it repaired. So they called Mr. Ningusibi. So Mr. Ningusibi is the first uh, defendant of this case. He came to the unit and repaired the electrical work. However, he did a very, very poor job. So he left, leaving Mr. Carr's two workers in the unit. Ms. Ramlakan came home after work, and when she went to turn on a tap, she got a shock from touching the tap and touching the water. She then told Mr. Carr's two workers to immediately get the electrician back so that he can fix whatever he hadn't fixed. Um, they s waited for him for quite a time. After a while, the body corporate asked why these workers were still there as it was late at night. And then she decided, okay, they should leave. And she just turned off the electricity in her unit. Um, she said that she felt that it was unsafe to have the electricity on as she had two small children in the house. And clearly all the taps and water was electric. So the next morning with the electricity still off, she leaves and she goes to work. While she's at work, Mr. Carr's two workers actually come back to continue refurbishing the kitchen. While they are there, they turn the electricity back on. When Ms. Ramlakan returns after work, she sees an 11-year-old boy being electrocuted at an outside tap. So this 11-year-old boy was helping his mum wash the car. He went to a tap close to Ms. Ramlakan's unit, and when he touched the tap, started getting electrocuted. She was very quick, ran into her house, and immediately turned the electricity off. So that, so, that tap was outside the unit, no? Uh, so obviously they must have cause a problem there that 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 uh, ran up to that uh, water line as well no yeah, so it wasn't, it was like an outside tap, but in some way it seemed to have been connected to her unit. And I have to say, she was very sharp to think of the fact that him being electrocuted had something to do with her unit. Yeah, um, it was actually a coincidence that she saw that, no, I guess. Exactly, because any other party probably wouldn't have known why the child was being electrocuted. Yes, yes. So um, she then 
Um, so this is now where we are. So the mother of the child instituted action against Mr. Nungusibi, who was the electrician that supposedly came to repair the work. Mr. Dembu, who was the owner, I'm saying he's the owner of the unit. I have to admit, in the court case, they never explicitly say that. But from the facts, it would appear that that is who he is. So they instituted action against Mr. Dembu as well, against the body corporate of the entire complex. And then at a later stage, Mr. Carr, who was the contractor they got to uh, fix the kitchen, was also added to the action as a third party. So what the court essentially had to decide was naturally the liability of Mr. Nungusibi, who was the electrician, the liability of Mr. Dembu, and then the liability of uh, Mr. Carr. So we'll deal with each one in that way because each had a bit of a unique um, delictual liability theory that they dealt with. So, so, so was, it, was the child killed or just injured? It seems like the child was only injured. They don't speak extensively about his injuries um, or what the effects were of the electric, electric being electrified. <laughs> so uh, what they yeah. did is they actually split the merit and the quantum of the case. So first they had to decide which parties could be held liable. And then in a subsequent th case, they will now decide uh, how much damage was suffered by the child and for how much each party should be held liable. So I believe the injuries that were suffered by the child will actually more extensively be dealt with in the quantum case than they were dealt with here in the liability case. Well, suspect that the injuries are fairly serious, otherwise they wouldn't have gone to court, I guess, no? Well, yeah, and they do remark it is a high court case, um, and they remark he was, it seemed to have been electrocuted for approximately two minutes before someone reacted and got the electricity sure. shut off. Yeah. So I think you can sustain a reasonable amount of damages in two minutes. Yes. So the court then first dealt with Mr. Nungusibi. So this is actually um, where they dealt with what we would refer to as causation. So for anyone listening, if you want to claim um, damages from someone else due to them having committed a delay, there's actually five elements that you have to prove in order to do that. So we know that the first is conduct. That means that either the person had to have done something they were not supposed to do, like, for example, hit your car, or they failed to do something they had a legal obligation to do. So that is, for instance, um, we've had instances where the court have said a lifeguard has a duty to jump in and save a drowning child. So he has a legal obligation. The next is wrongfulness. Um, then we have fault, which can either be intent or negligence, damage. So this could be a financial damage or non-financial damage. And then the last one is causation. So causation deals with the fact whether X's conduct was causally linked to the damage suffered by the other party. But causation actually has two elements. So the one is factual causation and the other is legal causation. So factual causation is kind of easy. Uh, we have a Latin test that we use. Uh, it's called the conditio sine non. But really all it means is if we remove the 
the electoral party's conduct, would the damage still have happened? So let's look at Mr. Nangasibi. He was the electrician who was called to repair um, the work. So if he had done his job properly, would the child have been electrocuted? No, obviously not. If he had done his job, if there wasn't an electric current running, the child would not have been electrocuted. So there is a very clear factual link between Mr. Nungasibi failing to do his job properly and the child being electrocuted at the end of the day. But the second element is legal causation. So legal causation deals with whether it is fair and reasonable to legally hold the person responsible for the damage that the other person suffered. So there's a bunch of theories and tests that the court can use, but one test is the novus actus intervenience. So this is what we call a new intervening event. And the easiest way um, to explain this, and it's actually the example they give us at university, is say you hit someone over the head. Not serious enough for them to die of the injury, but maybe serious enough to go to the hospital. You've hit them over the head, they go to the hospital. When they get to the hospital, they get out of their car and they get struck by lightning and they die. Factually, it is your fault that they are at the hospital. If you had not hit them, they would not be there, they would not have died. But is it legally reasonable to hold you responsible? And the court says no, because being struck by lightning, for example, is an unforeseeable, unusual and unsuspected event. So that is essentially what it must be. So when they looked at what happened in Mr. Nungasibi's case, they said, factually, yes, there's a link. But is um, the turning off of the electricity by Mrs. Ramla Khan and the turning on of the electricity by Mr. Carr's workers a nervous actus intervenience? So the court said, although um, turning electricity back on would not really be an unforeseeable or unusual event. But the turning on of electricity by a person who knows that there is a dangerous situation, who knows that doing so would recreate the dangerous situation, that is an unusual, unforeseeable and unsuspected event. So when Mr. Carr's employees turned that electricity back on, they essentially created a new intervening act which um, cut the causal chain of Mr. Nungusibi, and therefore he could not be held liable for the child being electrocuted. So um, they said that the claim against Mr. Nungusibi must fail. The next person they considered was actually um, Mr. Now I've forgotten his name, Mr. Denbu and Mr. Carr. So Mr. Denbu is, as I say, uh, who I presume to be the owner of the unit, and he was represented in all this by Mr. Maynard. So Mr. Maynard was the person who informed him that Mrs. Ramlakan wanted her unit to be um, renovated. Mr. Maynard was actually the person who contacted Mr. Carr to repair the unit, and Mr. Carr contacted Mr. Maynard to inform him of the electrical issues that they were facing. So during the trial, Mr. Maynard alleged that he contacted Mr. Dembu and informed him 
of the issue at hand. Um, but during uh, the trial, the court actually found that his testimony was unreliable and they concluded that he didn't ever contact Mr. Denbu. But now the question was whether the fact that Mr. Denbu had chosen Mr. Maynard to be his representative, whether that meant that Mr. Denbu could be held liable for Mr. Maynard's actions or in this case, omission, the fact that he failed to do something about the dangerous situation. So the court said that in order for the knowledge that one party has, which would now be the agent, Mr. Maynock, to be transferred, if I could say it like that, to the principal, which is the person giving the agent instruction, without that actually having taken place, there are two requirements. The first is that the agent must have obtained the knowledge during the normal course of their employment, which is the case. Mr. De Mr. Maynard obtained the knowledge of the dangerous situation while representing Mr. Denbu. And the second is that there must have been a duty upon Mr. Maynard to communicate this knowledge to the principal. And all the parties in their testimony admit that Mr. Maynard should have informed Mr. Denbu what had happened. I mean, he went so far as to let that he had actually informed him when he hadn't done so. So the court then um, said or concluded that when Mr. Dembu chose Mr. Maynard to be his representative, he also assumed the risk of what would happen if Mr. Maynard did not perform his duties properly. And therefore, he should be held liable for Mr. Maynard's omissions. And then on the same basis, very much the same basis, Mr. Carr was also held liable for his employee's conduct, which would be turning the electricity back on. Um, and if I could actually quote the court, they said, it is the principal who selects his agent and represents him as a trustworthy person and not the other party to a contract who has no say in the selection, who bears the risk. So Mr. Carr sent his two employees, he said, to Ms. Ramakan and all involved parties, they are competent persons, they can do the work. So if they fail to do that properly and someone suffers damages because of it, the employer or their principal must bear the risk of that happening. So what happened at the end of the day is the court actually concluded that Mr. Denbu would be liable. He would be the only party liable for the child's losses suffered, but that Mr. Carr would indemnify him to 50% of whatever quantum they decide on in the subsequent case. Advice, except to get a good uh, electrician? <laughs> Advice would be... I don't know. Make sure you understand what risk you are assuming when sending your employees out to do work. Don't think that you're going to send your employee out and if something goes wrong, you can just wash your hands of the case and it's not your problem. Um, we see this a lot in actually motor vehicle accidents. People go out, they're driving the company car, they are doing work for a company, they get into an accident and it is the company or the employer who will be responsible for the damages that are suffered. So make sure your um, employees know the, if, what the implications will be of their conduct and that they communicate with you properly when something goes wrong. Yeah, so vicarious liability. No? If um, the um, employee performs any actions as part of his conduct of service and uh, 
uh, there's direct liability flowing from that uh, action, then as a rule, the employer is uh, vicariously, in other words, uh, faultless liability. No? The, the plaintiff doesn't have to prove that uh, there was negligence on the side of the employer. We can prove that the employee was negligent, caused damages, etc., or causation, all the elements that you mentioned now, then uh, the employer will be automatically liable. No? And that's maybe a reason to also consider taking out insurance to cover those uh, liability risks that there, that there might be uh, to make sure that um, that you uh, do have the funds to, to pay any claim that might be instituted in, in, in such a case. And I guess it's also a demonstration of the duty that there is to act no, and to prevent loss for others no? in circumstances where the reasonable person would have realized that it's a dangerous situation and uh, then you can't just um, sit back and say it's, you didn't create the problem. If uh, you had an opportunity to prevent loss for someone else, then in terms of our law, there's a duty to act as the reasonable person would have acted. Definitely, especially if you are taking on action or work in which you imply that you have a certain amount of expertise or something that another person doesn't have. So if you're putting forth that you are competent and an expert in this area of work, a higher level of care is expected of you than, say, the normal person on the street. So I think also in instances like this, it might be best to go for the competent labor rather than the cheap labor, because in the long run, it's probably going to cost you less. All right. Thank you, Alicia. That's all we have uh, time for today. Remember, our email address is info at vvd.co.za. Thanks for uh, listening. Uh, make sure that you tune in again next week, Wednesday, between 3 o'clock and 4 o'clock, and then also on Friday evenings.